All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We'll be in verses 6 through 13 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want you to walk away with. God's redemptive promises and gracious plan of salvation rely upon him alone through his grace alone. Let me say that again. God's redemptive promises and gracious plan of salvation rely upon him alone through his grace alone. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Romans 9, 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born, not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls, she loved, but Esau I have hated. This is the word. What actually motivates you to share the gospel? Now, I know that's a, that's, that's a hard question to start with that can make us feel uh, straight away kind of beat up and, and convicted and that maybe we're not sharing. Well, but you need to investigate the why of that as well, right? So, so for those of you who do share the gospel, what is it that actually motivates you to do that? And, and remember, we here recognize that occurs in word and deed. It's not always the extrovert who shares the gospel. It's not only the extrovert that shares the gospel. We need you introverts to do it as well since we are 80% introvert here. And so it is very important that we be motivated to share the gospel. And what scripture actually argues, and this is the genuine point of uh, Romans 9, chapters 9 through 11, is that we, if you read Romans 9 through 11 and you are not more motivated to share the gospel, I'm going to argue you got it wrong. You misread it. And you're like, well, isn't that convenient? Well, we need to pay attention to context. Context matters. We are notorious, and this is part and parcel of the chapter and verse that was added in, uh, that, that we tend to t kind of pull things out of context and put them in other circumstances and try to make them fit a, a syllogism that God is not bound by. Now, those of you who are wondering, what's a syllogism? It's an if-then statement. If this is true, then that has to be true. God is not bound by that. We first have to humbly admit that our uh, pinning of God in, right, that the times that we think we have him hung on the horns of the dilemma uh, is arrogant. We see this with Jesus. You remember when uh, the, the Pharisees had caught the man and the woman in adultery. Interestingly, they only bring the woman. I wonder why that is. I don't know. But I do know that they were actually failing to keep the law by only bringing her. But they bring her and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they basically think they've got him hung on the horns of the dilemma. If he calls for her to be killed, then all this discussion of grace and forgiveness and God's goodness goes out the window. If he doesn't, 
he's a lawbreaker and he loses the Jews. You remember what Jesus did? He wrote on the ground something. We, we've spent a lot of ink trying to figure out what it was he wrote on the ground. It doesn't say. <laughs> That's the shortest and truest thing. But what he did do is he finally said, hey, I almost, I almost picture him a little bit like Columbo. For those of you who remember Columbo, you remember like Columbo, you're like, ah, I got this uh, question. Uh, he goes, hey, I got this question. Uh, who among you could throw the first stone? And you remember how the story goes from the oldest to the youngest. Now, why do you think the oldest dropped their rocks first? Because they, they, those rocks weighed a whole lot more in their hands for themselves. And so everybody goes away, and the one person who could, who could answer that question in the affirmative, who could have crushed her skull with a rock and been perfectly justified, doesn't. And he says to her, who is there to condemn you? And the answer is actually me. But I don't. Go and send them one. And so we constantly are trying to get God on the horns of the dilemma, but he does this interesting thing. When we do, he kind of turns the question back to us. And so if we were to say, God, why don't you care more about the lost? Guess where that question's going to boomerang back to? Us. So what we have here is a church that's divided, remember. You had the, the Jews who thought, hey, we got the covenant, we got the patriarchs, we got the law, we are the chosen ones. Now we've got the Messiah. These aren't just any Jews, they're now Christians. And because of Pentecost, they have the Spirit. And because of that, they evangelize and the church grows. And a number of Gentiles, according to the Abrahamic promise of the covenant, they start coming into the church, right? It's booming, it's exciting, things are going well. Until, in God's strange providence, he kicks them out via a Roman governor. you got to remember that would be very decentering to them. All this that they were building, all the promises that were coming true, all of the good things that they could see happening that were exciting and being fulfilled, they no longer had connection to. They were out. They didn't know for how long. God didn't tell them. So the, the Gentile Christians who were there were like, well, I guess he don't love them so much anymore. Uh, and we're the new kids on the block. We seem to be the point of the story. And they took over for a few years. And then in God's strange providence, a new governor comes in and he lets all the Jews back in. And the Jews are like, hey, thanks for keeping the fires warm. We'll take back over now because do remember we are the chosen ones. And a divide begins. They're fighting over who loves them more. Who does God love more? Right? Unless you think this is a ridiculous conversation, it's not. It's one that we could be very guilty of easily along racial lines, along political lines, along nationalistic lines, along, I don't know, uh, having a family lines. We could divide and fracture and suggest that God loves us more because of any number of things. And that runs through our hearts as well. And that tendency to want to be more loved of God comes on us. And so what Paul's trying to get them to see here is you and all this division are forgetting the mission. You are forgetting that there were promises of God. 
that this, this notion that the Israelites somehow are now out, no, that is not true at all. In fact, God in his mysterious providence uses the Jews getting kicked out to bring the Gentiles in who are grafted in and the Gentiles coming in to make the Jews uh, uh, angry or feel like, hey, they shouldn't have what is ours and, and brings them back in in a strange way, right? So it's this ebb and flow of redemption and mission that we need to be ambassadors of. We need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to this end. This should be our unity. And this is what he's going to talk about. Now, he's going to talk about some heavy subject matter that we need to be really careful with and we need to be very humble about. Again, remember, we don't decide the if-then statements that bind the Lord our God. He is bound only by what he has declared of himself. I want to argue that ultimately predestination and election is a doctrine of encouragement for inclusion and mission, not the other way around. Does it leave us with some questions? Yes. Does it make us wonder, well, well what about my, my daughter and my son who don't currently profess faith? Why does God love you more? Because yours do. What have I done wrong? as if it were in my hand. See, the doctrine of election and predestination takes the pressure off of me as the parent of two children who don't currently profess faith. The only hope they have, and if I look at their lives and I think they're going to get it from where they sit, <laughs> it ain't going to happen. But that gives me comfort because the Lord can pierce all of that darkness. It's the only hope my children have is if these promises are true. Now, how it works out, we're in real time. I don't know yet. I hope to be able to participate in it. I would love to be an ambassador of reconciliation in this. I should not take the doctrine of election and predestination and say, well, God's going to do with them what he's going to do. It's out of my hands. I couldn't care less. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry when I'm around them. No. I need to be praying for them. I need to be looking for opportunities to share. I need to be uh, presenting them with the, the, the robust joy of what it looks like to be a Christian. I need to let them in. I need to invite them into the space. You got to understand, for me, it's a little trickier because I'm a pastor. And my kids, they are uh, they're, uh, quite sarcastic, and they pull no punches. And so I can't sneak up on them, and I can't get mad when they say something I said 20 years ago. And so as we step into this, let us do so with great care recognizing we don't take anything just in its individuality out of its context. We want to follow the grain of what Paul's trying to teach us and tell us. And so what we have is coming out of the glorious declaration of God's love in Romans chapter 8, we have him saying, look, if it were up to me, if I could save people, here's what I would do. I would give up my salvation for these people that I love. What he doesn't say, and what hangs kind of in the air, but praise be to God that I, don't, that I don't have to do that. I don't have to die to win them. But he's showing that his heart is, his emotions are toward this end, intense and powerful. And this is where often we, we don't have this kind of love for the lost. Now, not everybody can love every lost person. And notice he focuses primarily on the Jews. He doesn't even mention the Gentiles here. Purely talking about his own brothers and sisters 
He's not, he's not trying to save everybody in the world, but this is his focus. And so coming out of that, he recognizes that they're going to have some questions. They're going to struggle with some things. And so we want to be clear that, that chapter 9 is primarily like the thesis statements of chapter 9, the purposes of chapter 9 can be found in verse 7, or 6 and 7 in part, and then 27 through 29. See, he's going to make it very clear that if it were left to the Jews to save themselves with all of the resources they had, then we all are eternally shipwrecked. We're lost. And we see that throughout history, don't we? They had the promised land and the promises and the patriarchs. And what did they do with it? One of the reasons that I would argue that the Old Testament is as long as it is and hard to read as it is at times is if you read the Old Testament and you're not left with a thoroughgoing uh, perspective that nobody can be saved through their own actions, you have missed the point of the Old Testament. That no government under the sun can fix us. For those of you who are like, hey, I think if we, anarchy and the free market would correct things. You need to go read the book of Judges. Read it start to finish and pay attention to the conclusion, the ringing bell. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. For those of you who are still fond of the monarchy, if we just had the right king or queen, I think it could work. You need to read First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. A sunnier perspective is First and Second Chronicles, but it doesn't really land there either. For those of you thinking, no, we need Parliament. You need to read Numbers. There's a Parliament in Numbers. You remember there were seventy that were chosen to help rule on some stuff. Seventy really wise people to help Moses out. Those of you who are thinking democracy, you need to read the New Testament. That don't work either in and of itself because the flaw is the human heart. It's not human behavior. It's not systems. And you may say, but yes, some are better than others for a while until they collapse under the weight of the human heart, right? So only the human heart can be changed and law can't do that. Can't get there from here. And so Paul is stepping into that to make sure they understand that all that you have can't save you, and it is God alone who is faithful. So he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So he's, he's anticipating that the Jewish folks would have said, if God gave us all this stuff and nothing can separate one from the love of God, then how is it that we are in the situation that we are in? Has the word of God failed? And the answer is no, because it was never about a single nation. Remember, the Abrahamic uh, covenant is a promise to all nations, and that Israel was going to be the instrumentality, the instrument in the Redeemer's hands, by which the gospel, as it was understood then, and Paul refers to the Abrahamic covenant as the gospel in Galatians 3. That's important. You should take note of that. But they were the instrument in the Redeemer's hands by which the gospel would bless the nations, not destroy them. Now, there would be, if those nations rejected, a cursing. There would be justice. There would be judgment. But he's, he's making it clear the word of God has not failed. And you need to understand this, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So the family that you were born to, the nation that you are a part of, does not it's important it would be convenient if it did, right, in some measure. 
if we could ensure that my belief would ensure that my kids believe and my grandkids, which I've got one and another one coming, uh, that, that that it would guarantee it. Hear me, I'd love that for me. I don't know how to help you if that's not true for you. I, I would love it if those born, born in East Point, Georgia, were God's chosen people. They're not, I can tell you, necessarily. But, but if where I was born and, and where I grew up meant that I would be a Christian and everybody that was around me that I loved and cared about, that'd be great. That would be easy, right? Not how it works. Not how it works at all. And then he goes on to say, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and he begins to quote from the Old Testament, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so, in essence, he is flinging wide the gates from Israel and the Jewish nation and people themselves and saying it is possible for someone other than a Jew or an Israelite to be a part of the kingdom. So he's reminding them of the beauty and the truth of the gospel that they wrestled with. And he's warning them that just because you are born and have the name is not enough. You must live this out. There must be evidence of who and whose you are, not, not to save you, but as evidence of your having been elected and saved. Now, think about the parable that Jesus told about the workers in the vineyard, right? So if you're a Jew, you've been there the whole time. You've had synagogues. You have suffered exile. You have been through some things. If you have never read uh, a history of the Jewish people, you ought. It is well worth reading. They have been through some things. So think about from their perspective. They've been there from the start and gone through it. And then you got some Gentiles who were out, according to Romans 1, doing whatever they wanted, declaring themselves whatever they wanted and worshiping uh, created things and getting into all kind of weird sexual stuff and having a great time, it seems. And you're going to let them come in. They haven't been in exile. They haven't had to live according to the law. In fact, they didn't. And you're going to let them in? You've got to be kidding me. Remember the workers in the vineyard, the folks who got there early agreed to their wages. And as the day went on, more people would show up at varying hours and times. And then you had that group that showed up right there at the last, worked for an hour right? We've all been in situations where this happens, right? Worked for an hour and got paid the same thing. What? You remember the early workers were not happy with Jesus or this idea at all. And he says to them, but you agreed to your wage. You got what you, you expected. All right, so that's money. How much greater salvation How much greater that you would be beloved of God, uh, rescued in Christ, chosen, elected, predestined. How much greater is that gift than money that perishes? Why would we withhold that or, or not want those kind of people to come in who haven't been here, who haven't suffered, who haven't set up chairs? We're going to battle this. If the Lord ever allows us to get into a building, 
We're going to have some people who show up, right? Once we have a building, that are going to say things, and y'all are going to have to watch me uh, when I hear this, because it'll probably be me that, that, that has steam coming out of his ears. Um, hey, I've known about y'all's church, but I just, I wasn't no way I was going to come with y'all setting up and tearing down. Oh, well, we're glad you're here now. I'm going to check your tithe record real close. You better believe it. You know, uh, but right, like, so there's a sense in which we've struggled. This, is, this has been our deal. We've put in the time. We put in the sweat. How are you going to just benefit? Why, why would we have that mindset, right? What a great gift it would be that, that if someone is too weak or, or just doesn't want to do this kind of thing, that we kept at it long enough for them to be able to become a part of the people of God. I'll take it. So we need to watch ourselves uh, that, that we aren't, with our own ideology, our own, the way we think about things, the way we engage with sinners and what we expect for them to understand and how to behave, then we're not keeping them out because we don't think they deserve a place among us. That we're being inhospitable to them uh, and inhospitable to their questions, to their foibles, to their struggles, because we just don't think they deserve to be among us. No, they do. Of all of the places in the world that the sinner ought to be welcome, it ought to be among the people of God because we understand the gravitas. And so we also understand that nothing else can save them. Nothing. They don't stand a chance outside of God being at work in them, and God has chosen that we be his instrumentality. You understand that, right? Like there's a sense in which when we start talking about predestination and election, you start going, whew. I ain't got to do nothing. No, you are the hands and feet of Jesus. You are one of the main ways, we are one of the main ways in which they are going to come to know. Not because we can save them, but because God will work in and through us. We are what, what was left. We are the remnant, in essence, left in the world for the declaration of the kingdom of God and his incarnation and his goodness. Why would we forsake that mission? Why would we not want to be a part of that, recognizing what's at stake? And he goes on. And he says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now, what, what Paul's stringing together here are a list of verses that remind us of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That the promise actually begins in Genesis 3.15 that God would preserve always his people. If you follow that particular motif throughout scripture, you recognize that with each covenant it picks up. Right? So with the Abrahamic covenant, it picks up pretty, pretty much straight away when Abraham is promised, or Abram at the time, is promised a child, he and Sarah. If you remember the story, it takes years. They're waiting. It's probably been 10, 15 years. And they go getting notions. You remember, they were like, well, God needs some help. So uh, Sarah says, Abram, you go hang out with Hagar for a little bit and let's see what happens. Remember, Hagar conceives, and it infuriates Sarah. Now, you need to understand that at the time that occurs, Ishmael is the covenant son. It's the only one they know. So this 
man, this boy, is the gift from God. And what do they do to him? You remember, Sarai beats Hagar, tries to kill her. Abram steps in, exiles, exiles them into the wilderness, and it says to die. Well, are you kidding me? So left to our own devices, we would end the covenant straight away. Now, you remember the Lord steps in. He preserves Ishmael and uses him as an instrument of judgment for that reason. However, he also steps in, changes Abram's and Sarai's name, and provides Isaac. The line continues. And if you remember with Isaac and Rebekah and that whole, and Leah and that whole mess, right? Those stories are, are a mess for a reason. And you remember that even, even when they get down to having Jacob and Esau, that thing's a mess. And each parent chooses the kid they like better. Again, left our own devices, we would take and rend the covenant completely in, into. And you may be saying, yeah, this just don't seem fair. But, but God's making the point that before you, you are ever able to do anything to impress him, he has decided of his love for you. And we can say, that don't seem fair. I would like to earn God's love. Okay, let's go back to what the plumb line is. The plumb line is God's righteousness, right? Perfection, holiness. Who among us could earn it? Who among you thinks you're even close to the line? Like you're, I feel like I'm like three quarters saved based on my behavior. Is three quarters saved enough? It is not. Praise be to God that the plumb line being righteousness and holiness is, is not what we have to earn our way to because we can't. The kingdom would be in ruins if that were the case. And do remember that the, the, the Jews did leave it in ruins. A complete mess with no entry point for the Gentiles. Cut off in exile over and over and over again, not just once. There's not just one exile, remember. There are multiple. The temple is not destroyed once. It's destroyed three times over at least. And so, left to our own devices, we would utterly wreck this. And do know that at this point where Paul's talking, it may seem troubling to you that he may be saying to Israel, well, you're cut off. No, that's not at all what he's saying. He's actually saying, if this were where the story ended, you would be through. He's actually going to say, no, you are, Israel is being enticed through jealousy because of the Gentiles to come in. Now, we'll have to have a conversation about that later on. But what he's making very clear here is that if it were not for the promises of God, we would be utterly shipwrecked. One of the mistakes that we make as we talk about predestination is we, we pre either presuppose a neutral starting point, right, which we don't often declare, but it just kind of hangs in the air. We kind of feel like we're, we're neutral and God is saying door one or door number two, right? The reality is, and this is Romans chapter three, and it was one of the sermons in Romans that made some of y'all the maddest toward me, and good, it should have, because it is a discouraging text, if that's all there is. But all have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are all hell bound, all of us, by nature. 
That is a theological truth that is hard to understand. It's difficult. We get into what happens to babies, what happens to uh, in utero. What ha- God's got provisions for those kind of things. Uh, the Westminster Confession is actually very gentle in those regards. I know we've got questions. We should. But it's important that we recognize the starting point is we are all hell bound. And God in his grace, who would be just to have let that go, by the way, chooses not to. And intercedes over and over and over again and has been patiently allowing history to unfold so the family can get bigger, not smaller. And the question is, are we participating with the gifts that he's given us? See, it's funny that we accuse God of of some sort of uh, uh, ill justice in what we deem double predestination. But do you share the gospel with everybody you meet? And if it's dependent upon you in some form or fashion, and God is not the promise maker and promise keeper, then you are practicing double predestination. In fact, you are far more uh, judgmental and harsh than the Lord our God, who saves wicked folks like us, who is patient and kind and continues. And yes, there is some mystery to all of this. I don't understand. I don't I don't want to have a conversation about eternity past because I don't even know what to say. I wasn't there. And the Bible doesn't talk about it. And I don't even know what to say about eternity future because I ain't got there yet. And then the Bible says some about it. That's going to be a great place and we'll all enjoy it and it'll be great. But let's be careful that, that we, we handle these things with questions and, and with doubts, but recognizing that God is sovereign. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 is helpful That which is mystery, we have to leave as mystery. If he doesn't speak to it and and clarify it, then we just don't know. But that which you know to do, you ought to do. And there's good news. The world ain't yours to save. You work within your spheres of influence. Because you can't save them, but all you can do is be faithful. That drives us nuts, doesn't it? It drives us nuts that he won't let us make more decisions for him. I mean, has he not seen the talent? Does he, has he not seen my track record? Have y'all seen my track record? It ain't good. It ain't good. And it's, not, and it's not that it's not good because God won't let me in control and I'm being petulant. No, I'm just petulant. And so this is very important, especially as we hear these next words, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That is a hard word. Uh, In fact, there's an excursus that I wrote for uh, when we went through the book of Malachi because it's quoted there. Uh, I'm going to say, go go read that. We'll talk more about Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. But for now, what, what is essentially being made very clear is that it was not anything that either one of them did to earn or lose God's love. But if you look at Jacob's life, What did he do with it? What does Jacob mean, by the way? The deceiver. (laughs) He wasn't a great dude and and, and really had to go through some things to even come anywhere near something useful in the hands of God as a sacrifice being offered. Esau, uh, if you remember, was man of the earth and was just every chance he got, he was angry because his blessing got stolen. Notice he didn't pray and ask God for anything. He chose instead, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to marry foreign women. I'm going to break every law I can find. In fact, I'm going to raise up a people who are going to hate God's people, the Edomites. There's real history here. 
And you may say, well, he was forced to do that. No, actually, he wasn't forced to do that. That was, those were the ways in which he chose to go about his business once he had lost the blessing, the younger and the older. This is an interesting comment because in this circumstance, who's the older brother in the church in Rome? The Jews. Who's the younger brother in the church in Rome? The Gentiles. Now, what's interesting is, lest the Gentiles hit them with a, a big old nana and a boo-boo, He's going to make sure they understand, no, you're, you're a branch that's been grafted in. You can be broken off. Don't get arrogant. Don't ever get arrogant about my love for you. My love for you should humble you always. And it should make you more cognizant of those who aren't currently experiencing that love. It should shape us into more missional people. Listen to what John Stott says about this passage. He says, if we were responsible for our own salvation, either in whole or even in part... We would be justified in singing our own praises and blowing our own trumpet in heaven. Now, this, I would argue, if you don't believe this is true, uh, help me understand the purpose of any and all social media. If it is not to blow our trumpet in varying ways, either some dance that we've learned or we've been doing this jump rope challenge for a year or we can quote some movie, whatever. I mean, we, we are constantly trumpeting ourselves. Rarely, I, I'm not on social media, so I'm kind of the old grumpy Luddite guy. Uh, but, but what I do see of it, rarely is it really all that honest or banal. It's always triumphalistic or triumphalistic about our failure, interestingly, right? So if we could, we've shown it. If we could in any way, shape, or form have a role in our own salvation, we would turn heaven into one giant social media circumstance. But such a thing is inconceivable. God's redeemed people will spend eternity worshiping him, humbling themselves before him in grateful adoration, ascribing their salvation to him and to the Lamb, and acknowledging that he alone is worthy to receive praise and honor and glory. Why? Because our salvation is due entirely to his grace, will, initiative, wisdom, and power. And praise be to God. So what hope would you have if salvation rested on your unfailing holiness and power? What hope would you have? And again, you, you, before you go rating yourself, why don't you put yourself under the spotlight? Like, let somebody else look at your life for a second and give you some feedback. And pick somebody who's not necessarily all that nice. That'll tell you the truth if you are confused about this. I can tell you, and I'm the pastor of a church, I get, I get paid to, to engage in the scripture all the time. And I was thinking about that this week. Man, if I, if I had to give an account for all of the minutes and hours of every day, and, and I had to say that I was, con you know, hey, I am constantly praying and serving the Lord, I, I, I'm out. I'm out. And you may say, well, we deserve a better pastor. You do. <laughs> but, but. Praise be to God that it's not based on me. And I am convicted of that fact as I've been thinking about it this week. And I know I'm not going to be perfect, but I'd long for greater uh, communion with the Lord our God. 
I long to be an instrument in his redemptive hands in ways that, that, that are uh, part of my sanctification. And I pray the same for you. Because if it depended on you, uh, you would be left hopeless. And then what hope would others have if their salvation rested on our unfailing obedience and perseverance? Don't be discouraged with what I'm about to say next. When's the last time an adult made a profession of faith in this place? What hope would anybody have if, if that was the marker? Right? Like if, if God came now and said, all right, let me, let me see the talents. Dump the treasury. We'd roll some kids out now, don't you? And, and, and would do so with great fervor and joy. That's one part. That's one mission field, right? And, and by the way, quick plug, we're going to need some volunteers for kindergarten first grade coming up really, really quick. Now, this is important, the next generation. That is it. We have a huge mission field there, okay? However, we also have all these other mission fields and spheres of influence, and we should long for and be praying for that the Lord would entrust adult souls and baptisms to us as well. That we, because there would be a vibrancy. Adults who come to know Christ, they, they just ask different questions. They have a different fire about them, right? Like we could use some fresh wind, some fresh fire, right? And, and, and what a gift that would be to us. Let us pray to that end. Let us cry out to the Lord for that. Let's, don't go try. Cry out to the promise maker, the promise keeper, who is faithful to do what he said he would do. And let's trust the Lord. And then ask, all right, Lord, how might I be an instrument in your hand here? How might you use the gifts and the talents and the way that I'm wired as an introvert, as an extrovert, as a whateververt, uh, how might you use me? In the places that I am, I, I don't have to run off and figure something out and, and, and get obnoxious here, but how can you tender my heart for the lost in my spheres of influence? And what might that look like in five or ten years what a beautiful thing that would be for this church, that he would answer those prayers over that time. So Romans 6, uh, 9, 6 through 13, teaches us that God's redemptive promises and gracious plan of salvation rely upon him alone through his grace alone. It is his promise and it is his power that brings it to be. What a gift that we get to come to the Lord's table after having heard that that we come to the table as evidence of his goodness and his promise, right? That we are the evidence of God's faithfulness. And this should uh, help nourish us to the end for which we are elected, which is uh, to, to be missional, to give away the great gifts that he's given us because the, the heavenly treasury is inexhaustible. Ephesians 1, the other place that talks about predestination. He's lavish, Let's be lavish, too, in our hospitality, in our forgiveness, in our reconciliation, in our creativity. Let us be lavish in uh, loving those who are lost. Let us be lavish in our justice and our righteousness, uh, displaying God's character in the world and becoming Christ-like. And so this table helps nourish us to that end and helps us to remember that we don't dine alone. This ain't on any one of us. It's a gift to all of us. 
And so let me give you a couple of instructions before I uh, make the pronouncement. If you are not currently a believer, like you don't believe in Jesus as Savior and you don't think yourself all that sinful, well, you need to let this meal pass you by. This is not a meal for you in that regard. There's nothing to celebrate in that. If you also think there are a people who are cut off from God that, that you think ought just burn in hell and you couldn't care less about, you also, you can't dine at this table under those circumstances because you're declaring yourself God and you don't get to do that. And it would be to your detriment for you to eat and be encouraged in that. So please don't. And if you do think that way, we, we, it would be good for us to have a, a non-judgmental conversation about that. Because there are some things that we struggle with. Some people that we think are pretty awful and not deserving of God's love. Well, that's understandable. But you can't bring that to the table. That has to be laid down. But for everybody else who knows Jesus, even though you may wrestle with it, who, who knows you're a sinner and you may wrestle with how bad you are or even how good you ought be, uh, if you believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior, you are welcome at this table and you need it to continue in that process as God's people. And so uh, if you are on this side of the room, you will go to Philip and Paul. We'll start with the back row moving toward the front. You'll exit to the outside and circle back to the inside. If you only want uh, the, uh, the, the cup and the wafer, which is one, I call it communion MRE, uh, it's just one thing, put out one hand. If you want both the bread and the cup, put out both hands, right? And do so at the same time. Some of y'all like to kind of fool us. You're like, whoosh. Oh, look at him. Uh, <laughs> help us out. <laughs> Go Macarena, okay? Let's, let's get it down. Uh, and so two hands, uh, and so, uh, so that we can get that to you, or one if you just want the one. This side of the room will start front and move to the back. You'll exit to the outside. Uh, I'm sorry. You'll come to the inside aisle, come down, and return on the outside. All right? If you would stand and remember what Christ said on the night in which he was dining with those he loved so dearly who understood what was about to happen so poorly. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this, this is my body and it is given for you. And in that breaking of the bread and in that giving of his body, he was providing for the removal of their shame and their guilt for their sin, past, present, and future, and the satisfaction of God's wrath toward them, which now makes them a son and daughter of the God Most High. But even more, as the meal went on, he took the cup and he raised it and he poured wine into it. And he said, this, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins meaning that they would be imbued with the resurrection life of Christ himself. They would be filled with the Spirit so that they could be instruments in the Redeemer's hands, ambassadors of reconciliation, truly nourished. And it wasn't a one-and-done deal. He said, now, I want you to continue to do this in remembrance of me. We do that in that lineage. And so as you receive the bread, meditate on the goodness of God to forgive you of your sin, past, present, and future, to make you welcome hospitably before his very throne, any and all times. And when you receive the cup, consider how you are filled with the Spirit and are able to participate in the fulfilling of the promises of God, not because you're awesome, but because He is. And give thanks for that. And then hold and we'll all take together as family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this meal, but more importantly, thank you for Christ 
and his real presence with us this morning. We thank you that the Spirit will use this to nourish us, convict us, embolden us for righteousness and mission's sake. Would you help us, Lord, to carry out and be part of the fulfilling of your promises, the advancing of your kingdom in this broken and fallen world? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.